Hello guys and welcome to episode 16 of the Reviver Cell podcast. Here we go. Are you sick and tired of being sick and tired? Have you got a health issue that just won't go away no matter what you try? Then welcome to the Revive Yourself Podcast, where we reveal the secrets to long-lasting health by getting to the root cause of problems that no one else is talking about. So you can have more energy, clear skin, healthier hair, a leaner physique, more confidence, and most importantly, do the things you love and live the life you deserve. Here's your host, Ryan Martin. So guys, welcome to episode 16 of the Revive Yourself podcast. Today's guest is Leah Keith, the author of The Vegetarian Myth, Food, Justice and Sustainability. And this book has been called the most important ec- ecological book of this generation. Um, and Leah uh, goes deep into different topics of vegetarianism and veganism. Um, I mean, as it says on her site, she's a writer um, feminist, food activist, and environmentalist, and it's a really, really good interview. We cover a lot of different topics that go deep into um, being being a vegetarian or being a vegan. Not just well, obviously we go into the health issues and the health side and how it affects or it can benefit benefit or negatively impact people's health. But we go into um, specifically the soil, the earth, um, and even things such as agricultural dumping which we all you'll come to understand what that is as the um, interview progresses so guys um also as i said before you can find leah at www.leahkeith.com um she's got her own website there and lots of interviews on youtube as well etc but without further ado all the way from northern california here she is leah keith guys enjoy and i'll see you on the other side Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Revive Yourself with Ryan Martin. Today's guest is Leah Keith all the way from California. She's the author of The Vegetarian Myth and it's actually a book. Um, actually I heard Leah speak quite a few years ago on a, on a podcast and ever since then I've been wanting to get her on my own podcast so it's just been an interview <laughs> a long time in the making in my eyes. Um, so Leah, welcome to the show. How is it over in California today? It's good, and thanks for having me on the show. No worries. Thanks uh, for writing this book. For those of you that don't um, haven't heard of the book, Vegetarian Myth, I suggest you go out there and get it. It's an absolutely phenomenal read. Um, I know this well, the topic we're going to be talking about today um, might mean I'll get a couple of emails from vegetarians and vegans, uh, but that's okay. That's not a problem. Um, it was a, it was a really good book really well researched um especially for someone who is a former vegan herself to go out there and write a bit like this it takes i think a lot a great amount of mental i'd say almost say mental toughness um because so, for someone to to actually look at themselves and go maybe i've been wrong all these years um to go and research a topic and to go against what they've been doing in the past it takes it takes quite a lot um especially I mean, ego as well so yeah, just for the audience out there, can you tell everyone what made you become a vegan in the first place? So when I was 16 years old, I met another teenager who was a vegan. Her whole family were vegans. And that's actually um, the number one way into vegetarianism or veganism is meeting somebody else and you're convinced. 
So it's almost like a religious conversion. Um, and she had all the facts, all the figures, um, all the horrible pictures of factory farming. It was all there. And, you know, I grew up in this very you know, sort of urban, suburban environment. I knew nothing about where my food came from, what the cost of it was, you know, how it was produced, what, what any of that meant. And so when somebody presented me with these horrible facts about how animals were being tormented and the environmental destruction involved and the amount of waste and all of that, um, it, was, it was very convincing. And I was a very idealistic and very motivated young person. A lot of teenagers are, you know, that's that time of life when you have that kind of fervor. And I, I just, I took it up right away. Within two weeks, I was also a vegan. Um, and she recommended a lot of books for me to read. And I, you know, I just swallowed them whole, essentially. And the arguments made sense. And I had no counter information. You know, I had no point on which to stand that showed me a different, that there would, might be a different interpretation of these facts or a different decision based on those facts. So all I knew was, well, if I do this one simple thing, if I take animal products out of my diet, I will save the planet, save animals, save hungry people, and also save my health. And that seemed so, just so convincing, like, why not do it? So I did. So I spent 20 years struggling through <laughs> um, my life as a vegan, trying to make that work. And at the end of the day, it failed me utterly. So 20 years. At the start, so you said there you were vegan for 20 years. I and mean, this is what I was going to touch on. But at the start, because I'm someone who, if people, I mean, a lot of people eat in my, clients come to me, I've got, these other two different people, people are, are vegan and they're struggling, um, like yourself, or people that are eating far too much meat and they're eating meat from anywhere and everywhere. Um, when you went vegan to start with, I, I we'll get we'll get into the health problems that you had later on. But when you went vegan to start with, did you notice an improvement in your health at all? Yeah, I think like a lot of people, the first two or three months you do feel better for exactly that reason. You're taking a lot of the junk food out of your diet and eating a lot more vegetables and. You know, there, you may have problems with things like dairy products that you weren't aware of, you know. So you do feel better often for a few months. Um, but then eventually the rubber hits the road. And, you know, it's not a diet that has enough nutrients for the long-term repair and sustenance of the human body. So you're going to end up with problems if you do this long-term. Yeah, 100%. And this is something that I, I think is quite big for, for people to realize it. Um, a lot of people get caught up in the dogma of things and they get so attached to a particular diet that it becomes them, it becomes a part of who they are. Um, and so for, this is someone who's talking, for guys out there be listening, <laughs> this is someone who's talking from 20 years of experience of being a vegan. Leah wasn't a vegan just for a few months or maybe a year. She was it for 20 years. So when you've been a vegan for 20 years, um, I'm, I'm going to say you were probably pretty much identified with your <laughs> being a vegan. What were the, the health impacts you had, if you had any, after being a vegan for that long? And also, did your friends that were being vegan today come across any, any problems? So there's an entire generation of us out here who tried this long term. And the longer we did it, um, the more we destroyed our bodies. And a lot of the damage is permanent after you do this for a decade or two. So... I feel like I stand here as some kind of a terrible example. You know, it's a morality tale, essentially. And I really do hope that people younger than me coming up next, you're allowed to learn from my life. You know, you're allowed to learn from those of us who came before and really did give this our all. Um, and we're telling you that it doesn't work long term. So the first thing that's going to happen is you're going to end up with really terrible blood sugar problems. The human body was never meant to um, metabolize that amount of sugar on, you know, day to day. Uh, maybe, you know, 
one or two weeks out of the year, there might have been a binge on fruit that was available. But um, the amount of just flat out sugar that your body has to handle to eat these plant-based high carbohydrate diets will wreck you. Um, you're going to burn through your insulin receptors and the amount of insulin that's required to handle that sugar, you can call it complex carbohydrate if it makes you feel better. But in your intestines, it is broken down into simple sugars. That's what digestion is. So for it to enter into your body and actually be used as a nutrient, it's broken down into simple sugar. So it doesn't matter whether it's you know some kind of groovy whole grain brown rice or whether it's table sugar. It's sugar at the end of the day to your body. And we were never designed uh, to handle that load of sugar. So right away, you're going to end up with um, a constant hypoglycemic kind of roller coaster. So you eat, you know, a load of sugar for breakfast. So whether it's, you know, brown rice or a whole wheat bagel or, you know, whatever, pick your poison. It's a load of sugar. You dump that in your body. And, you know, we can only survive at a very narrow range of sugar in our blood. If it's too high or too low, um, immediately your brain is impacted. You can fall into a coma and die. So this is a biological emergency. And your, the body's response is to send out this huge kind of pulse of insulin from your pancreas to get that sugar out of your bloodstream to get the blood sugar levels low enough that it doesn't hurt your brain. So in comes the insulin. And insulin is a very blunt instrument. It grabs everything it can out of your bloodstream and shoves it into fat cells as fast as it can um, just to clear it so that, you know, that it, it's toxic load at that point. So you're just trying to get that sugar out. Um, but like I said, it's a blunt instrument. So having done that, your blood sugar is now too low. Okay. You can see we were not designed to do this because it's not a finely tuned mechanism at all. So now your blood sugar is too low. So in an hour or two, you're desperate to food, put food in your mouth. And again, it's another biological emergency. This time it's the too low kind. So now you have to eat another load of carbohydrate to feel normal. And this is what I did to myself for 20 years. And by the end of it, I had to eat like maybe every 20 minutes or I felt like I was dying. And I was dying. I mean, that's the thing. Like, this really is a biological emergency. But I had no idea how to explain why it was that, you know, I just had to constantly eat. Um, and everybody I knew went through the same thing. Like, we just all were constantly snacking because we felt horrible if we didn't. And that's what's hap That's what'll happen. So that that stage, you have hypoglycemia. Eventually, your insulin receptors just wear out because the insulin load is so high and so constant. It's like a lock and a key. So the insulin is the key and the receptor is the lock, but you're using it over and over and over and you just wear it down. So the insulin really doesn't fit into the receptor anymore because you've just damaged it across your body. And so your body keeps having to produce more insulin each time you do this to have the same effect and you burn your pancreas out. Now you've got type 2 diabetes. So now you have to add excess insulin from outside from an exogenous source. You have to take a shot or whatever um, so that you don't die. And all of this is just purely dietary. You know, this, these are, this is the classic disease of civilization is diabetes. So having all of that um, excess insulin running around in your bloodstream all the time is ultimately the source of things like cardiovascular disease. Um, it does tremendous damage to your blood vessels. Uh, and this is why the, the number one cause of death for diabetics is actually heart disease. Um, and they call that metabolic syndrome or syndrome X because all of these diseases come as a, come as a package. And this is well known, you know, amongst doctors and in, in the medical literature. But that's really why is that we were never designed to handle that load of insulin. So this is what you're doing to yourself when you eat those, you know, plant-based high-carb diets. Um, something that your body simply cannot handle on a daily basis. So I did that. So, Go ahead. so what I was going to say was, so what if a, so what if a vegan was to eat 
and they wasn't eating wheat, they wasn't eating gluten, they were eating a lot of plant-based foods, but they were also adding in things like avocados and avocado oil and, and extra virgin olive oil, and they were adding maybe in the MCT oil, etc. So they were, when they were eating their plant-based foods, they were also getting fats in there. Um, and if they were eating maybe sweet potato or potato as well, they were mixing it with um, these oils, these fats. Would that, that help them? Would that improve the, their blood sugar? It does a little bit because when you eat fat, it does slow down the digestive process. So it's going to hit your bloodstream at a slightly slower level. The problem is that, you know, at the end of the day, you still have to process every single one of those carbohydrates. So even if you do it more slowly, if you're doing it all the time, you're still doing it. Um, I mean, I'm sure like you, I get a lot of emails from very confused people who are eating this kind of diet. They feel terrible. They don't know why. And honestly, the first thing I tell them to do is take all the soy out of your diet and add, add, these, add these fats right away. So, you know, coconut oil, avocado oil, at least now you're getting some of the fats that your body needs. Stay away from the canola, the soy oil, the corn oil, all of those horrible, you know, the, the polyunsaturates. Your, your body just these are not substances people have ever eaten before. You know, like we are not meant for those. But if you can at least get some better fats into your diet, you'll feel a little bit better while you try to figure the rest of this out because it is a long-term process, you know, when this falls apart on you. But, uh, you know, back to your question, yeah, the fats are going to help a little bit, but it does not actually address the real problem, which is that high load of carbohydrates that is just going to, it's just mass destruction, you know, in every one of your cells. Um, and the only way to do that is to reduce that carbohydrate. And you can't do that on a plant-based diet because that's all it is. So when you went through, I think I, um, I've heard, well, you said before as well that you also had, uh, you get quite bad information of the joints, arthritic conditions as well from, from being vegan? Yes, this is very common. And in fact, I've had emails from people who have exactly my condition from being a vegetarian or vegan. Um, so within two years of starting this vegan diet, I ended up with degenerative discs in my spine. And 18-year-old people don't have their spines fall apart randomly for no reason. You know, it's when they look at my MRIs, their first question is always, wow, you were in a really bad car accident long ago. And it's like, no, but it was the nutritional equivalent. You know, I might as well have fallen off a roof. That's what I did to myself. And now I understand step by step exactly what I did. The, you know, there's a whole load of deficiencies with this diet. And there's also the excesses of this diet and put together what it means is your body simply can't repair. And this is particularly hard on joints. Joints are very poorly vascularized. Um, and they need very specific things. And one thing that they absolutely need is high minerals in the diet. And you can't get that eating a plant-based diet. There just aren't enough minerals um, in plants uh, for healthy bones and healthy joints in human beings. So I will live in morphine-level pain for the rest of my life. You don't get those discs back once they're destroyed. Um, and I, there's a lot, I live with a lot of physical constraints on you know, my ability day-to-day. That's where you're going to end up if you do this. So I've met a lot of ex-vegans like me, a lot of recovering vegans who destroyed their ankles, their knees, their hips. And yes, some of us went and did our spines as well. So um, I have found that, you know, eating a more appropriate diet for humans, um, I did get better. Um, it's never going to go away, but it's dramatically better than it was. By the time I was done being a vegan, I, could, I only stood up when I had to. And I couldn't even sit up for more than maybe 20 minutes at a time. So I pretty much lived on the couch. That's how much pain I was in. And now, um, you know, I can walk around for 30 minutes. Um, at that point, I do have to rest. But I can also sit for hours now, which 
is huge. You know, when you go from lying on the couch to being able to go out to dinner, go to the movies, drive to the store, even take an airplane to go visit your parents. I mean, my life is so much bigger than when it was so tiny and so constrained. So I'm grateful for what I have, what I've been able to repair, but it doesn't go away. You can't do this level of damage and have it repair. So, um, you know, again, out there, listeners, you are allowed to learn from my life because um, I really don't want this to happen to anybody else. And it's something I want to bring that up because I think that's quite a big, big thing people need to hear um, because there's a lot of people buying into this hit run singer. And although I always say that everyone's unique, you're as unique on the inside as you are on the outside, it's really important for people to understand that um, you have to listen to your body. And when your body's set, this, as you said, an 18 year old shouldn't have those sort of symptoms, that sort of illness, um, sort of problems. Uh, in general, as your body speaking to you, it's the same as everyone, it's their body speaking to them saying, something you're doing here isn't working. Um, and so it was really important, I thought, just to get that out there. If at the time when you were a vegan, because there's lots of popular vegans out there, I mean, I think it's Rich Roll has got one of the biggest podcasts on health in the world, and he's a he's a v- v- massive vegan, um, he's, a, he's an ultra marathon runner, huge vegan, got a massive following. Um, and I mean, I know they they can be very uh, vegans in general. Um, not not all of them, but it can be become quite, um, say, dogmatic with their approach to things, and they can be quite self righteous. It's not that go anyone. I'm just talking my my experience of dealing with people. Um, if someone at, at that time had said to you, "The air, these problems are all being caused by your diet," would you have believed them? I did have people who said that to me, and I did not believe them. Um, it, it, in, in that universe, you know, when you are, when you've accepted this entire ideology, there's no way that it can cause harm. It's the way forward. You know, it's the truth. It's almost, it's almost a religious kind of precept. And so, there's no possible way that this diet can create harm. And I knew the children who were being harmed by it. I saw the harms that were happening to young children, especially, and um, I didn't believe it even though the evidence was right before my eyes. Um, And I was also experiencing it, you know, like my spine was falling to pieces. I felt sick all the time from the hypoglycemia. I stopped menstruating. That happens to a lot of vegan women. Um, I was so depressed I could barely get off the floor some days. Like I had all the problems you're going to have with this diet and I couldn't accept that it was wrong. Um, And, you know, we have a word, we have a phrase for this in psychology. It's called cognitive dissonance where you know, what you want to believe does not match your experience. And and there's this terrible dissonance between those two things. And what happens to people psychologically, generally, in those in those situations is that instead of reevaluating their ideology, they bear down harder and believe it more. And that's exactly what happened to me. And I think that's what happens to a lot of people who take this up, because you want to believe in it you know, so strongly, like this, this is a way forward. This is a better world. We can have this peaceful, beautiful, nonviolent existence where no animals get hurt, you know, for my life to feed me. I I don't have to be one of the violent, terrible people who's destroying everything. I'm going to be the good person over here who's willing to sacrifice whatever it takes um, so that I can be pure. And so there's a kind of personal purity that really does have kind of a, a religious fervor to it. And it's hard to get out of that when you're in it. There's no, there's no question. It's, and it becomes who you are. So it really becomes your identity. And it, nobody has an easy time questioning that. So, and I mean, let's face it, I was a fanatic. You know, I was a very radical, um, very committed, you know, sort of 
you know, I was one of those people. And, uh, you know, you have to learn that there's, yeah, there's a part of fanaticism that's important. Like it's really only fanatics that change the world, but um, you can do a tremendous amount of damage and you're not particularly pleasant to be around, you know, when you're, when you're carrying that kind of psychology. So, oh, well, live and learn, right? No, no, no. I think it's huge for people to understand that. I mean, one of the quotes you currently come out with was, uh, which we really liked in the book, was, what separates me from vegetarians isn't ethics or commitment, it's information. Uh, and that's a really powerful quote. Um, that comes from the movie to research you've done, and also your personal experience, which a lot of people... Um, don't have. I mean, 20, 20 years of doing something. So, what age did you start, and what age did you did you stop being a vegan? Just people out there. I started when I was sixteen, mm-hmm. um, and I stopped when I was thirty-six. Yeah. So, I had almost almost reached the twenty-year mark when I stopped. That's a long time. If 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 people, this is why I say people, it can work short term, really good for cleansing the system, but long term it can have its own its own problems. Um, and when you go to a lot of vegan, if you go to a lot of health shows and you see vegans out there. Some of them, if they're in their infancy of it, they can look really good, but a lot of them have been in for a long time. They look malnourished and, and mm-hmm. ill and sick. And it's something that we're, we're talking about. You mentioned a little bit about depression and anxiety. That's something I wanted to t- um, talk about later on with a few of the things you talk about in your book later on. So we'll go into that. Um, another quote that I really loved was, um, we'll go a bit in, into this now. We're going to move in a little bit because your book covers different different parts of it. So you've got also, also you've got... Um, the uh, nutritional side of it, uh, vegetarianism, veganism, and the moral and then the ethical side. So we're going to a bit of it, a bit of it all. Um, so this this quote: "The truth is that agriculture is the most destructive thing humans have done to the planet." Uh, that section of the book the, that means it before the moral vegetarians, political vegetarians, nutritional vegetarians, um, and the the moral side um, and the agriculture side. I love this. I love the chapter because although I'm deep into nutrition, there's a lot of stuff out there that a lot of people don't talk about. Um, and I read it twice. It was really, really good. So it goes into about how how our foods are supposed to be grown and how it's done now, etc. So there's some people out there. A term that gets thrown out a lot is sustainable farming um, and things being sustainable. But I don't think a lot of people understand what that is. You just let people know what sustainable farming is um, and what it, what it means. Okay, so first of all, we need to define our terms. Um, So when I say agriculture, um, a lot of people think that just means some way that people get food by applying human activity or something. Like, it's kind of vague what that means. And very specifically, what I mean is um, a system of annual monocrops. So wheat or corn or soy. And yeah, so that's... That's what agriculture is. So in very brute terms, you take a piece of land and you clear every living thing off the surface of that land. Okay, and I mean down to the bacteria. So all the life is removed from that land. And then you plant it with crops that are just for humans. So it's biotic cleansing. I mean, we've all heard of, um, you know, ethnic cleansing. Well, it's the same thing, only it's all of life, not just humans. So everything is removed and then you only grow wheat or corn or soy. And I don't know how it is, you know, where you are in England, but here in the United States, you can go through, um, you know, the, the middle part of this country and you can spend two days driving and you see nothing but cornfields. Yeah. So that's an annual monocrop. Yeah, okay. It's just the same plant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Over and over and over. It's the same yeah, yeah. plant. So there's a number of problems. So first of all, you've got mass extinction because all the plants and animals, everybody who needs to live there has nowhere to go. And we have done this now um, across the surface of the planet. It's been skinned alive. 
Um, and 200 species go extinct every day. And this is the main reason why. It's because they have nowhere else to go. Um, because we have taken that land and only dedicated it to humans, to our needs. So that's problem number one is mass extinction. But another problem is that this is inherently destructive to the soil itself. And soil is the basis of life. We have to understand this. The, you know, the, all the organisms that do the basic work of keeping the cycle of life moving on this planet, you know, they live in the soil. So one tablespoon of soil can contain over one billion living organisms. We don't see most of them, but we are utterly dependent on them. They are the ones who are doing either, you know, the basic um, degradation of nutrients and recycling them back into, um, you know, that kind of cycle of life such that another organism can now take it up. Um, without them, life would just grind to a halt pretty instantly. So we need them. Yeah, that's yeah. what that's what topsoil is. Okay. It's teeming with life. We think of it as inanimate dirt. It's not. It's so alive we can't even conceive of how many living organisms are in there. Uh, uh, and that's just you. one tablespoon. This is why I go into this is why I can go on for ages so many mixtures of stuff. <laughs> the topsoil. So Paul Check talks about for your country as well, sixty percent of USA's topsoil being destroyed. So uh you what what is it for people out there and why is it so important? And also haven't really answered the sustainable farming question. This is why it's, it's there's so many topics to go into. A bit. So the, the problem is that farming can't be sustainable. When you are doing this, it is inherently destructive. And I remember when I was 20 years old, I had a professor who said to me, the moment you put a plow to soil, you degrade that soil. Right. So I thought I had find I found this great way to save the world. I was going to go vegan, and by doing that, everything would be okay. And in that one sentence, he destroyed it all. Because if he's right, and he was right, you know, that putting a plow to soil just degrades the soil, what it means is every year humans have to take more and more land because we're destroying as we go. So if you're on that down slope, you know, if the line is headed down, it's going to hit zero, you need to take more land every year and start over. And that's what we've done. That's what the la that's literally the last 10,000 years is humans doing this to the planet. And we are now out of topsoil. The major grain-growing regions of the world, by the year 1950, were completely out of topsoil. And at that point, there should have been a massive correction. I'm not saying this is pretty, but there should have been a massive correction in the human population. And instead, what we did was we learned how to use fossil fuel instead. And that's what we've been eating ever since. And this has been a massive disaster because we're still faced with that same you know, collapse of this civilization. But um, we've put it off for a few decades by learning to eat oil instead. But this can't be sustainable because you're destroying, first of all, you're destroying the entire web of life because all those creatures are being driven extinct. But secondly, you're destroying the topsoil. Um, and that means that every year you're just going to have to keep taking more and more land. Well, the earth only has exactly so many square inches on it. And then that's the end of it. So we've used it all. This, this can't be done sustainably. It's, a, it's an inherently destructive activity. And that's the thing I did not know when I took up veganism. I didn't understand that. And I had to do many, many years of experiments in my own garden to finally come to grips with that, with that understanding. Oh. That this is, a, this, is a, this is an activity we're going to have to abandon if the planet is to have any hope of a future. And I'll also point out as an aside that agriculture marks the beginning of global warming. Um, we all think of the Industrial Revolution as the point where this started, but that's not true. If you take all the carbon that's been released since the beginning of the Industrial Age, so say year 1800, um, that's a lot of carbon been released since then. But if you back that graph up to the beginning of agriculture, the same amount of carbon has been released uh, because of doing agriculture. So it took longer, but you're still releasing all that carbon. And literally, you're burning the topsoil up, and it's releasing. That, that's what 
soil is made out of is carbon and you're, you're it's just being burned up into the atmosphere and so that's it we 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 started this destruction by doing agriculture and then industrialization was an accelerant but it's not the beginning of the problem so if you said that you've got a quote in your book which basically talks about this you said um a way of uh yeah so sorry sorry any way like that um that is destroying the basis of life itself can never be sustainable it is in fact insane without a living planet we are dead um, and so that's what you're basically saying that if you're destroying the soil then that's where everything comes from um, and if that happens then we're it's in, over we're, we're, yeah yeah so yeah and and then you, you go on to talk about because people this is these are topics that although in the health industry we talk a lot about certain supplements and fats and carbohydrates and proteins and we talk a, to a lot about organic farming fermented foods and lots of stuff but this is like where it all comes from and if this goes then none of that matters and this is where the this is basically the root of the, of, of, of what we need to, to get to and which we go into later on about growing your own food and stuff but what are for people out there perennial what what is perennial um, polyculture and what are okay. perennial grasses uh, just so people out there sure understand. sure so a Perennial plant is a plant that lives a long time, um, and an annual plant is a plant that only lives a year. So annual means year. So that's you know that's that's the general difference is the, the longevity of these plants. But what that means is what's important. So because perennials live a long time, it means that um, they can develop these really extensive physical bodies, um, and what that means is really deep root systems. So if you think about um, you know, a plant that you might grow in your garden, like a head of lettuce or something. Well, you know, you can pull that out of the ground. It's You can see the root system. It's just a few inches deep. But a perennial plant goes down, um, you know, just meter after meter. I mean, they can just, they can go down 12 feet, 15 feet, really deep. Think about a tree, right? That's a perennial plant. It's going to live 100 years, 500 years. Where I live, these trees are 2,000 years old. They've got these enormous root systems. And those root systems do incredible things. They are habitat for other creatures. Um, they provide um, a symbiotic relationship with soil bacteria. Um, they literally hold the, the soil in place. They anchor it. Uh, without that anchoring perennial root system, the soil simply blows away. You know, it washes away in the rain. It blows away in the wind. Um, and then another thing they do that's incredibly important is they provide a physical channel by which rain can actually enter the soil. Um, without those channels, the, the rain just hits the surface and runs off. It really just can't penetrate as deeply as it needs to. But with the perennial root system in place, um, the water can actually drain down all the way you know, to the bottom and recharge the water table. And also it acts as a giant sponge. So, you know, in most places of the world, there's some kind of seasonal variation. You'll get a lot of moisture in the winter and the spring, and then the summer will be drier. Um, and during that dry time, it's the perennial plants that provide an, an incredible function for the rest of the living community. By, by having those roots, they can then draw up that water that's been stored in that sponge, and they make it available to the rest of the living community. And without that function, everything just turns into desert. And a final thing that perennial roots do is those roots are long enough that they can actually reach down into the bedrock, and um, working symbiotically with different um, bacteria, they break up that rock. They literally eat the rock. And then they make those minerals available to the rest of life on Earth. You and I cannot eat rock. 
we're ultimately dependent on that relationship to get all the minerals that we're going to need up into, you know, the life that happens above the soil um, and ultimately into our own bodies. But without that, without the plants and the bacteria doing that, we'd all be dead. So we need them for all these reasons. So, um, but, so when you do agriculture, you're taking all of those perennial plants off the land and you're only planting these, these annuals that can't get minerals and that can't create that channel for the rain to enter. So you're losing water, you're losing minerals, you're losing the actual structure of the soil, the bacteria have nowhere to live, and ultimately the entire thing turns into desert. Um, and one another way to think about this rather grimly is that no civilization lasts longer than 2,000 years. They last between 800 and 2,000 years because um, that's, the, that's how long the soil can handle this destruction. And then at the end of the day, it just turns into desert. And that's what we've seen across the world. Think about the places where agriculture started. Um, they're in very bad shape. I mean, you think about places like Iraq and Iran, you know, that were some of the, the cradles of civilization, and it's just desert, right? But you, you don't think of them as being, you know, oak savanna or, you know, cedar forests so thick that sunlight never touched the ground. But that's what they were prior to the invention of agriculture. So this is an inevitable path. Um, you know, the, the, the end was written into the beginning. So that's what perennials do is, is they, they create this abundant, very resilient um, cycle of life. And annuals, on the other hand, are exactly the opposite. So, and I'm not to say that annuals are bad. Annuals have their place. And their place is, so, okay, they're annuals. They only live one year. They have a very, very short time. Um, to get everything done. And the most important task they have is, of course, reproduction. And so, that's true for every species. So, for example, just out there, what, so different, what, is, what is an annual crop, for example? It would be, could, could be wheat. It could be an annual grass like yeah. wheat or, you know, rice or corn or whatever. It Soy. could also just be, yeah. yeah, or an annual vegetable like lettuce or tomatoes or whatever. Though tomatoes in tropical countries are, are perennials, but whatever. We don't get into that. Yeah. Um, but if you think about those plants, um, you know, they have a very short amount of time to to make babies. And what they have to do is, of course, give their young the best chance they've got to survive. And what that means is that the seed heads tend to be really big because that's their only way to reproduce. Perennial plants generally can reproduce in a number of ways. Like they often can reproduce by runner. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll make more babies out of just sending out more roots. So where I live, for instance, in the, in the, the redwood forest, the redwood trees, um, they tend to fall over when they're old. Um, and so the tree falls over and what happens is from that dying trunk, a whole bunch of new plants sprout. Um, so it's almost like cloning, you know, of the same plant, but that's how they reproduce is, is basically they fall over and that's like the new track that the plant, that the, the, the baby trees will grow on. Um, so out of that trunk, you'll see, um, you know, the roots come down and then the shoots go up and then that's how they start over. Um, not true for, for annuals. I mean, they can't do that. So all they can do is make giant seeds. And this is important because the seeds are big enough that they were worth harvesting if you're a human. There's enough energy in those seeds because they're big enough that it's worth the effort. Really small seeds aren't worth the effort. But annual plants, those annual grasses, you do get enough just brute energy out of them that it's worth your time to harvest them. So agriculture developed in um, river valleys around the world. And that's because... Uh, rivers create all kinds of um, physical disasters in the uh, surrounding plain, you know, the floodplain. And what that meant was, um, this is when annuals come, you know, come into their own. When the land is cleared for some reason, those giant seeds that have been lying in wait in the soil now can spring to life. They can't outcompete the perennials. 
So as long as there's a perennial mat in place, you're not going to get any annuals. But every time there's a disaster across the planet, whether it's a fire or a flood or an earthquake, and you've got bare land, the first thing that happens is those annuals spring to life and they cover the ground immediately. Um, and this is really good for the planet because bare ground is an emergency for life. Okay, because it's destructive. But immediately, it's, this is like they're, they're the first responders. It's like putting a Band-Aid or you know, a bandage over a wound. That's what the annuals do. And then eventually, just like your skin knits back together, the perennials will inc enclose you know, across the area again and knit the soil back together with those root systems. But for a few years, you're going to have annuals being very dominant in that system. So in river valleys where floods happen all the time, there's a tremendous number of annual plants for that reason. And a few of these plants have ended up being edible to humans and worth the harvest. And that's why agriculture has always developed in those river plain areas. So... Um, in order to then domesticate them and plant them, you know, as a way of life, it means that the humans have to um, reinstitute that biological emergency across the face of the planet. You have to clear that land, just like a flood would or a fire would. And having done that, you then plant these annuals. Um, every time you do that, you're destroying the soil. And the longer you do it, the more the more destruction of life happens. Um, and that's the problem. So that's the cycle we've been on for 10,000 years. So, if you're gonna, if you, if for example, we're getting rid of well, a lot of places. If you say if you go across America, happens in, like in Europe and the UK. If you're getting rid of perennial grasses um, for the annual crops to grow, and we're doing this year after year, after year after year, so and saying so you call mono crops. Um, now, what happens if we feed the animals these? Because they're meant to be in the perennial grasses, correct? What happens if we take yeah. away perennial grasses and they start to have nothing but annuals? Well, the animals themselves get very sick. Um, bison and cows and other ruminants are not meant to eat corn as a, as a staple food. They are designed to eat grass. Okay, These are giant ruminants that evolved with grasses over millions of years. And they do make a perfect ecosystem altogether. Mm -hmm. But the problem is we've taken them off their native habitat of grass and we put them in essentially cities on cement floors in steel buildings and we feed them a completely unnatural diet. And, you know, things like corn are really bad for cows. In fact, it kills them ultimately. They can really only be on that, um, that kind of corn-based diet for about 60 days. After that, they all just drop dead. Um, it's too acid and the fat balance is all wrong and, you know, there's just all kinds of problems with it, but it literally burns a hole in their stomachs because it's just wrong for their ruminant. You know, they have those, the rumen in, in that four-chambered stomach, and the, it just, it's terrible for them. And so then when you have holes in your stomach, you know, all this, this horrible stuff gets into your bloodstream. Their livers end up severely damaged. These animals are just, they're just sick. They're unhealthy. They're miserable. They're in pain. But they do get fat really fast. That's the one thing about corn. The same thing happens to them as happens to us. When we eat nothing but carbohydrate, you know, people tend to get fat and the same thing happens to animals. So the only, quote, good thing about this is that, you know, the only positive for capitalism is that it, you can create meat really quickly because the animals fatten really fast. Um, and so when all of this is monetized, which is basically what happened in 1950 with the creation of factory farming, um, of course, it's going to go in that direction. 
Um, and in the United States, farm policy is directed entirely in that direction. So we subsidize all completely the wrong things, which is another boost to factory farming. Yeah, so all of these are these are just vast political and social problems that have got to be addressed. But anyway, it makes the animals really sick. And then, you know, you slaughter that animal and you feed it to humans mm -hmm. and it makes humans really sick because now nothing in that meat matches the needs of the human body. So the amino acid profile is wrong and the fatty acid profile is wrong. So it doesn't have the right kind of proteins and it doesn't have the right kind of fats. And I can speak more technically on that if you want, but you can also just trust me, it's completely wrong. So the animals are sick, the humans are sick, the land is sick, everybody is sick from doing this. Um, and so I think this is why everybody, no matter what you choose to eat, I mean, we all kind of have to agree that factory farming is just a horror on every level. Yeah, no, no, factory farming oh. is, I mean, I, I don't eat that much meat myself. I eat meat, I don't eat like copious amounts of meat, but all my meat, meat I eat is all organically farmed, sustainable, it's like most of it, if I can get it from my local farm, as we said, but factory farming is, it's not even farming, it's just, yeah, no, it's, it's just, just, it's just a disgrace to, to, yeah. to, to farming, and most farmers, and you see some of the videos, and that's why we talk about, we're going to go into the ethics of this, because I know a lot of vegans, etc., don't eat meat because of that, and I can completely understand yeah. that, having watched some of the videos, sure. but not all farming is like that, if you go to my farm, for example, the Longwood Farm, it's in Suffolk, um, you go and you can meet the you can go and like pet the cattle, meet the cattle, meet your farmer, talk to them. It's a completely different world to yeah. the things that you see where people slapping cows, almost uh, beating things with like sticks. That's that's completely disgraceful. I've got absolutely no time for that at all, and so I do understand. But that's the thing that stands out for me is um, what you said before as well about how the plants. Um, actually, well, they break down rock. Um, it's a parasite. It's just, this whole thing that goes on. The, the plants actually eat the parasites, um, and it's an animal at a much smaller, smaller level. Um, so the thing that stands out for me with vegans and vegetarians, they don't want to kill animals, but actually the method of growing food for vegetarians, they actually do kill animals in that way. It's just something that most of them don't actually realise. Well, this is the problem. Like the question is way bigger than what's dead on my plate. The question is really what died to get that food on my plate. That's the question. And if you're eating that's yeah. And if you're eating an agriculturally based diet, um, the answer is honestly everything. That's what's killing the world. Um, and I certainly didn't know that when I was a vegan. You know, I looked down at my plate and it's like, oh my god, it had a face and a mother. I can't possibly eat it. And I didn't realize that you know the brown rice and you know the lentils that I was eating had destroyed an entire ecosystem. Like an entire living community had been eradicated so that I could have that food. So millions of animals just permanently gone from their homes and we're talking about extinction not even the death of one animal oh yeah 100% you know and the thing you know what I've got loads of notes I was going to go through them but the reason we, we, it's, it's such a topic you can go back and forth I'm just going to let it flow because it's much easier so when you said that um, this, this is the idea um, when for, for for people to be healthy or for even for life to exist um, I think you had, you had a quote on this I looked I look for it uh, while we're talking about it, but for, for life to exist, for people to be healthy, for the world to go on, death is inevitable. Um, and for vegans, this is the thing, if you if you go on to any sort of, do any research into animals, when you see an alligator take a buffalo out of the, <laughs> crossing the river, or when you take see a snake eat another snake, for example, these aren't lovely things to watch, but yeah. it is, it is uh, life. Um, and so, as much as factory farming is a complete disgrace, Actual farming and eating animals and taking care of them and living in harmony with them is completely different to that way of life. Would you would you agree with me on that? I would. It's, it was very very hard for me to accept 
you know, that the death was inevitable. I really tried my hardest um, to have a life that did not depend on the death of other creatures. And it was, it's a fool's journey. I mean, it, it, there's, it's literally not possible. Um, and so I think coming to grips with that, you know, I feel like that was the moment that I really became an adult was when I accepted that, that it, that that was just that was it's just the nature of it it's it's that's the joy and the horror of being alive it's always that bittersweet moment of life is so good and yet it depends on so much suffering and there's no way out of that once we take physical form i mean maybe there are other realms of existence where this is not true i we can't speak to that we don't know there's no way to prove it what we know is right here right now every living creature needs energy every living creature needs nutrients and those come from other living creatures no matter what creature you are that is true um, and it's, so it was really hard for me, but you know, I had to come to this understanding that there's two kinds of death. There's the death that's killing everything. And that's the agriculture, you know, that's the pattern of civilization. And then there's the death that's part of everything. And that if we could take our place again as humble participants, that we could again be creatures that encourage life, that support life, that are part of a, a soil building community, as Edward Hyam says so beautifully that we could be members of a soil building community because that's what every other creature does because that's the substrate for life on earth is that soil. So if we're participating in building soil, we're doing what we should be doing and we can do that. You know, we don't have to be dominators. We can simply be participants again for our first two and a half million years on this planet. We were not monsters and destroyers. We were participants. And this, I will stand by when you look at cave art at the, the amazing art that people made the moment their brains got big enough to be able to do art, what was the first thing we drew? We drew two things on those cave walls. There's two kinds of sculptures that are found over and over again. And one is the megafauna, the animals we were eating. And the other is the mega females. And what these things have in common is that's who gives us life. It's the animals we eat and it's the women who give birth. And we were saying, thank you. That's it. The moment our brains got big enough, we said, thank you. And so we can be participants like that again. We don't have to keep destroying um, you know, this amazing place called planet Earth. Yeah, and you talk about this, we talk about it, and you've got, I mean, the quote that you've got actually was, in the vegan outlook, um, exploitation begins with demon, uh, domestication, but, um, it's just the same, but because the animals, the, a lot of the animals that we're dealing with at the moment, they've been domesticated as well, um, and because it's a symbiotic relationship that we have with the animals, um, so it's, it's almost, it helps, it's, it's something that we help them, they help us in terms of life. It's a circle of life, right? Um, and as you said there, uh, demonizing death wasn't going to help. That's another quote you got from the book. Uh, I think that was you talking about growing, when you were talking about growing your garden. Um, it's a story I actually yeah. to go into when you were wanting to grow your garden. So just, just tell people what happened um, when yeah. you had around <laughs> slugs and nitrogen, etc. It's, well, so the first thing is, you know, all right, I'm going to grow my own food because that's what you have to do to be sustainable. It's like one of the biggest things is, you know, close the food miles, grow your own food. And I had, you know, enough yard. I was like, okay, I can try this. So, all right, you know, make a garden happen. So I'm going to le learn all about organic gardening. How does it happen? How do you do it? What do you need? And so, of course, immediately you start learning about the soil. And this, of course, was the first horror was like, how many dead things were in the soil? You, you just have to realize it's all just dead plants and dead animals. That's all soil is. And they're being acted upon by these tiny little creatures we can't see, but that's what keeps the whole cycle moving. And in order to have healthy soil, it needs dead plants and dead animals. So, you know, I had two options at that point. You can, you can go to like the local farm store and buy amendments for your soil 
But if you read the packages, you know, as a vegan, the whole thing grinds to a halt because it's blood meal and bone meal. That's what the soil wants, you know, you, or you can get manure. I mean, I, I did ultimately go to a friend who had goats and I got manure out of her barn, but that's not vegan. You know, I was like, well, somebody else can do the terrible animal oppression thing and have the goats and I'll just take the manure. But that's a lie. I mean, somebody has to keep them in order for me to get the manure. So I knew that already I was slipping, but I couldn't see how else to get the nutrients into the soil. Um, and there is no other way. I mean, that's just, that's just the reality of what soil needs. It's evolved over millions of years um, to be exactly that, plants and animals, dead, you know, broken down by bacteria, recycled back into a new life form. That's what it is. So I could participate in that or I could pretend it wasn't true. And year by year, I would degrade the soil on, in my own little garden plot. So I decided, all right, all right, I'll try. You can add some minerals by um, getting what, rock dust. So this is rock that's ground up specifically for use on, you know, gardens and farms. But, I mean, it's kind of ridiculous to pretend that that's in any way sustainable. I mean, the amount of fossil fuel that goes into grinding up rock, it's, it's probably astronomical. I mean, it's got to be astronomical. You can't do that at home. Like, <laughs> you can't grind up rock. I mean, it's just that just seems insane. So, yeah, I can buy it, but it's industrially produced, and God knows where it even comes from. I mean, open pit mining is very ugly no matter where it happens. So I couldn't pretend that that was anything I could call sustainable, even if I wanted to call it vegan. So, you know, right away I had problems. How do I keep the soil healthy? So now that's problem number one. Problem number two is, well, how do I protect my food? Because immediately there are other animals that want it. So there's this constant battle where you've got slugs, you've got earwigs, you've got rabbits. I mean, where I lived, there were deer that were just... I mean, they're basically locusts. There's so many deer in the Northwest in the United States. And they'll just come in in the night and eat everything. And, and you wake up in the morning and there's nothing left. Just nothing. It's just down to the ground. They ate it all. So then you replant. All right. And then the next night, the same thing happens. And that first summer, I must have replanted the lettuce 12 times. Like, they just, it's just every single night there were slugs. And it's like, what am I going to do? Do I kill the slugs? And everybody's like, yeah, you have to kill the slugs. Like, I can't. They're sentient beings. I'm not supposed to be the person who kills things. This is supposed to be all nonviolent and beautiful and peaceful and the lovely food that's going to bring us into this, you know, utopian future where nothing dies. How do I do this? And I, there's no way. Like, you have to accept that you're in competition with these other creatures. I took their home to make a garden. That's the thing. You know, it was a forest. And it got chopped down to build the house I was living in. And then some of the land was cleared to make a meadow and, you know, the area for the garden. It all happened before I was born, but I can't pretend like, yeah, that was a forest. All right. Now it's my garden. And these creatures want to come back. That's the thing about life. It will do everything to come back. And that land wants to be a forest and it wants these other creatures there. It doesn't want me there particularly. So I had to realize like I'm fighting a battle with nature because nature doesn't want to be an annual monocrop. It wants the trees back, you know, like, it wants to repair itself, and I'm inflicting this wound over and over. But here are the slugs. Now what do I do? So I started collecting them. I'd go out every night, and I'd collect them. But then where do you put them? I mean, it's like, where are they going to go? So I remember at one point I had them in a little container, and I took my bike down the street, and I found this sort of open forested area that, you know, I don't know who it belonged to, but it looked like, you know, the woods. I was like, all right, I'll just leave them here. So I kind of dumped them out, and I sat there, and I watched for a while. And you know, it was this moment where I had a much bigger realization about just this. This was just it was a it was just a ridiculous activity what I was doing. Like, if there was room for more slugs in that section of wood, they would already be there. Like, they're reproducing all the time. All I'm doing is adding more burden to that land, 
most of these slugs are going to die from starvation because there's only so much food for slugs in any one given spot. That's true for every creature, right? It's it's not infinite. It's a couple of acres of woods. Like there's no room for extra slugs there. They're already there. So all I'm doing is I'm starving out some of these other slugs. Like some of these slugs are going to die because I've added some new ones to this. And I realize it's like this is just it's not infinite. The world is not infinite. Like it's it's already in balance and all I'm doing is throwing it off and the death is inevitable for these slugs. Like there's no way around that. So I didn't do it again because it was like this is just silly. And so I backed up from the whole project. I said, "All right, I won't garden. I just won't. I'll let somebody else handle these kind of ethical quandaries because honestly, they were killing me. I mean, I was up all night. Just I couldn't figure out what to do. None of it made sense. None of it fit my beautiful vegan model. All right, I'll just give it a break for now. So I stopped and I went to the store. I was like, I'm just going to buy lettuce. So I remember standing in the store. It was another one of those moments holding a head of lettuce. I had it in my hand and I thought, you are so fooling yourself. Whoever grew this lettuce had to kill slugs too. And you're just paying somebody else to do the dirty work for you. You cannot pretend there are not dead animals behind this head of lettuce. You now know what's involved. You know what they had to do to keep the soil healthy. And you know how many animals they probably had to kill. There were birds they killed. There were deer they killed. There would have been rabbits. There would have been woodchucks. There were absolutely all kinds of insects. All of these are animals. All of them are sentient. You care about all of them. But some of them had to die for you to eat this lettuce. And you have to just accept it. And it was really hard. (laughs) Because I really believed that my life was possible without that death. And it just wasn't. So I had to come to terms with that. And at the end of the day, I got chickens, which was incredibly fun. Um, And they ate the slugs for me. So I didn't have to feel like I was a murderer. But again, I'm playing a game that's just silly. Like I brought the chickens and the ducks onto that land to eat the slugs and the earwigs. It's ridiculous to pretend it was for any other reason. And they did a beautiful job. And they gave me eggs. But it's the cycle of life. What they need to eat is insects, right. and what I need to eat is eggs, and there it was. We made a cycle, and we made beautiful, healthy soil together. The cycle of life is what people want to say. I'm going to do a post about this. You see people, what they ate, the chickens and the ducks, they ate the insects. They weren't eating bread, but you feed them down the, down the park. No. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of my pet peeves. I see people throwing It's very duck, bad for duck. ducks. Oh, they're throwing very ducks bad. They bread. have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, when do they, they that's what they eat, bread. It's like, oh really? They pop down a supermarket and get a loaf, do they? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they eat bugs and see, so these, these chickens and ducks, uh, sorry about these chickens and ducks, they, um, they, Ate the bugs and they kept your garden and it all, all and it all started to work and once you had the, added the um, manure the garden started to th- uh, to thrive right yeah yes it was beautiful and it was the soil was black it was so dark and fertile it was beautiful so what do the plants eat so people understand that well they eat a lot of things um, you know they need nutrients they need a lot of minerals um, and the animals can't get those for themselves so you have to add them if you're going to have a garden and that's where that stuff like the rock you know the rock powders come in but you can also get a huge load of minerals out of blood meal bone meal and manure that's where it comes from so you've got to add it you know and so the 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 gardeners sort of the the troika of gardening is npk and those are the three things that you've absolutely got to add to soil Mm. um but you know your best your really your best way forward is is the animal products you can only go so long without them and anybody who gardens can tell you that you can try it but i'll guarantee you in 20 years you're not going to have anything left of that soil oh sorry there's nitrogen there's phosphorus and there's calcium right yeah cool but that's still missing about 60 elements so as you said if you the best way to do it um is through the, through the manure. Uh, yeah, just get it all. Get Give them everything they need. And, you know, it's remember they evolved all together. So they know how to eat things like bone meal and blood meal and manure. That's, that's what they need. Right. So yeah. 
You can't just give them part of it and expect it to work. They need the full complement, and they probably need them in ratios that we don't even understand because it's very, you know, all of these relationships are very complex and very and symbiotic. So you, you got to let them sort it out. They know what they're doing. And with this symbi- symbiosis, it's something that you said um, as well in the book. Um, for example, we're dependent um, and, and predators as well. This is like you put in the book. You, the example you gave was a deer. Um, and when the deer lose their predators, the population gets too big and they can no longer sustain themselves. Um, and there's a wonderful video that was given on this on social media, I think a year or two ago, which was about, I think it was about the coyote when they were taken away from, I think it was Yosemite. It's the wolves. It's the wolves. When the wolves were reintroduced. Yeah, it's what wolves do for rivers is the name of the video. Yeah, yeah it's phenomenal. Yeah, phenomenal. What so happens. Should, yeah. yeah, so people should yeah. watch that. So that when you talked about deer, and when you... It was only a four-minute clip, and it was just like, and the, the amount. It's what people don't understand. The circle of life is huge, and you take away one thing, and the knock-on effect or the but, but, butterfly effect, as they say, is huge. So, with the deer, that's what happened. Their population got too big, correct? Yes, it was just completely out of control. They don't know how to do birth control. You know, they're just going to do what they do. But remember, they've evolved with predators, and you need the predators to keep the population in check. Nothing else does it. So they destroyed everything. You know, they they ate everything to the ground and the rivers were completely falling apart and they introduced the wolves back and the wolves are able to keep the population in check and the rivers come back to life. And it happened in a very quick amount of t- very, very short amount of time is really amazing. I mean, it's miraculous almost what life can do to repair itself. But you have to have every member of the community. You know, we can't just pick and choose the ones we happen to like. You know, all of these creatures evolve together and they, they make a community that is everyone is interdependent in that web. Yeah. Talking about the rivers, in, uh, sort of the rivers in the U.S. Uh, disappearing. Um, I mean, especially the lakes have been they've been used, and you talk, you're also going. There's so many things I could talk about in the book. Yeah. Two thirds of the world, it's too hot, too cold, or too dry. Um, so, for example, that you've got places like Arizona, we've got things like Spain, so where a lot mm-hmm. of the food um, is in supermarket comes from Spain. So if, if they're growing food but there's no rain, how how do they get water there? And, uh, and, well, this has gotten scarier and scarier. They used to just drain it out of the rivers. Well, now all the rivers are gone. So what they do is they pump it out of the ground. But now the water table has dropped so far that in many places, they're literally using oil drilling equipment to get the water. That's how far down the water table has dropped. So there's these giant aquifers you know, across the world. And in the United States, we have the Oglala Aquifer, which is the really big one underneath the Midwest. And it's just dead at this point. There's almost nothing left under there because they pumped it all out for wheat and corn and soy. And this, people should be horrified about this because we are facing mass starvation when this really hits. And for now, it's like we go to the store and it seems like it's loaded with food. And so nobody much thinks about it, but the water is running out. It's it's gone. You know, like there's no way for it to re- re-enter and recharge because it's nothing but annual crops. So every time it rains, it doesn't really do much good. They have to keep pumping the water out and the water table keeps dropping because it's not being recharged. And so every year it's worse and worse. Scary. And what is for people out there is the number one fossil soil. I mean, we said um, it takes four calories of fossil fuel to make one calorie of food. Um, so it also comes into where does our food originate from? How much fossil fuel did it take for that food to get onto your plate? It, it, it goes. It, it's quite when you people start. People don't think about this. For example, we've got Tesco's over here. They're like another part of water. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've got organic potatoes from Egypt. All right. So when you think about it, it's madness. Um, yeah. So 
They're destroying the the Nile to make those potatoes. Everybody needs to know that. Like the Nile, this ancient, beautiful river, is being gutted to grow those potatoes to sell in England. And it's just madness. And you talk about fossil soil, and we're going to get into agriculture dumping later, later on, a little bit later. But it, one great quote you put in it, but I mean, it's full of great quotes. It was uh, the reason I wrote this book is because the people that care the most don't even understand the problem, and that's a, that is like even for someone. Um, right, people go into healthy food and they're going to the supermarket. I mean, the only way to sort of do this really is to try and, like yourself, make your own garden and grow your own food and and try and buy locally. Because otherwise, it's as you say, it is quite scary that this is gonna how this is gonna pan out for us. Um, but I, I think you can really do to water your own grass and try and make the change for yourself. This is why I wanted to get you on because this information is so important for people to to hear. Um, I yeah, and the kind of the kind of policy changes that have to happen, kind of on an institutional level, we're only going to get those if the committed people who are really impassioned about saving life on this planet do understand the nature of the problem. Because right now, most of them don't. You know, they think it's factory farming, and it's way bigger than that. You know, it's agriculture itself. Like we've got to understand where the destruction started and what we're going to have to do to reverse that. When you when you see it, like you said, when you when you go and you're driving, like yours, I've been across America and mm-hmm. it's fast. And when you see those fields, when you see it over here with rapeseed and, and corn, mm-hmm. but when you see it's like fields and fields and fields of one crop, there's something in your head that actually goes, that can't be right. when you've got when you've got the forest and you see all the things growing and living and you've got a garden and everything's flourishing and a small amount they talk about oh um, you need factory farming and GMOs to sustain the world and feed the world I mean that is rubbish we know that Um, I mean in China for example what they can grow on I think it's even like a quarter of a mile compared to what we grow on like a mile it's ridiculous Um, but it's just something in your mind goes Imagine all anything else you could be growing on that. On that, I mean, you've got um, is it Joe St- uh, Palin? Is it over there? Style one of the farmers over there. He talks about it in depth. I'm trying to get. Him. To talk to him. Oh, Joel Salatin. Joel Salatin. Yeah, yeah. No, he's fabulous. Brilliant. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he's farming. Really wonderful. Yeah, he's yeah. farming. People can just go and Joe Salatin. Go and look him up and listen to him talk. It's it's phenomenal and what he can grow on that farm. It just doesn't. The mind thinks. This can't be right. Miles and miles and yeah. miles, as far as the eye can see, of one crop. But it's because it's cheap, it's easy to produce, and we're going to... Uh, I mean, to be fair, that the, the farmers... I want to get into... Actually, feel like we'll get into some of these other things last. We, we'll do this now. Um, the farmers... You've put a quote here. People don't, most people don't realise this, that most of the farmers, um, this is in America, uh, their work subsidised by the government because... It's just so cheap. They can't even grow enough to, to be paid. Um, yeah. And it's one of the things you say. You say, so you're an environmentalist. Why are you eating annual crops? I mean, that's a great quote. Um, and you've, you've got another one. So um, in the USA, the grain and the starvation of poor countries are not inverse but proportional. You just yeah. talk to people about that, why that is, because this is something that most people don't understand. I mean, go into the different companies that run the world's food supply and the windmills, etc. Sure. But, yeah. So um, one of the books I read when I first became a convinced vegan was Diet for a Small Planet by Frances Morlapay. And one of the things she did that I think was good and very crucial was that she made people think about food politically and um, that, you know, there were institutions behind this and that, you know, there we could have an impact on it and all that. And I think it's good. You know, she she politicized the food system. But she got some of that stuff wrong. 
So for instance, you know, there's this very sort of simple equation that it takes 18 pounds of grain to make one pound of beef. And so we should take that 18 pounds of grain and give it to people and we could cure world hunger. And that seems so simple, you know, on the surface of it. And I believed it for 20 years. I mean, it's like, yeah, wow, that just seems so self-evident. What are we doing? Um, the problem is that that's not actually reality. So this gets a little complicated. So you have to sort of follow along. And this is this is of grain to get one pound of meat, right? Yeah. Sometimes so they say eighteen, but you know, meat though, right? it's grain-fed meat. Yeah. So the problem is, um, you know, why do we have this surplus of grain? Where did all that corn come from? And the answer is, you know, 1950 is when factory farming started, and that's because um, in World War II they figured out how to synthesize nitrogen. Um, out of oil and gas. And so the war ends and they've got all these factories and scientists realize, well, actually we can grow plants with this now. We don't need to use it for munitions. So that's what they did. And this is called the Green Revolution. Um, and plants were developed that grew very short. So not a lot of energy wasted on their bodies, but they produced absolutely gigantic seed heads. So that's the part the human wants, the humans want. So all the energy now goes as much as is, as could ever be possible, goes right into the seed and not much into the stalk. So they're very short and they've got these giant seeds and they are, are absolutely dependent on vast amounts of water and vast amounts of nitrogen in order to do that. So these plants have been developed for uh, fossil fuel fertilizer. Okay, so they go hand in hand. So what happens is there's this mountain of surplus grain that is created, especially in places like the United States. Where is all that corn going to go? I mean, it's pennies for a mountain of it. I mean, there's just so much of it. And you know, the, so people say these very simplistic things like, oh, give it to hungry people. That's not how it works. They have to be able to pay for it. And in order for them to pay for it, what that means is in their countries, instead of being self-sufficient communities that grow their own food, produce their own, you know, have their own local economies that are, you know, based on what they can grow locally and how they can provide for themselves, they now have to enter a market economy where they are producing goods for sale to rich countries. And with the pennies they get in return, they then have to buy cheap food from places like the United States. Now, in no other circumstance would anybody who was progressive-minded call that um, some kind of arrangement of justice. It's not. It's utter exploitation. These were self-sufficient people who we are telling, leave your land, leave your attritional way of life, go to a city, get a job, make sneakers for us in the West and we're going to pay you 10 cents an hour to work in slavery conditions and now buy your food. And that's imperialism. I mean, that's colonialism 101. And yet people on the left somehow think that this is justice and it's not. And so I want people to understand this. And what happens now is that there's a practice called agricultural dumping. So rich countries like the United States that have these huge surpluses based on fossil fuel are then able to take these just vast amounts of these commodity foods and sell them in poor countries. Um, and it wrecks the local self-sufficient economies. They can sell corn and rice for half the price that local farmers can produce it. So, of course, it's driven everybody out of business. So all these problems in Mexico, in places like the Philippines, all around the world in third world countries, um, these, these self-sufficient, once self-sufficient farmers who had all kinds of security and beautiful cultures based on, you know, thousands of years of tradition are driven off their land into urban squalor and are now just essentially slaves to the market economy um, because of agricultural dumping. And all kinds of activists in these countries, you know, they have one demand, stop agricultural dumping. We know how to feed ourselves. We used to be able to do it. And you people have destroyed it. 
But then when you step back into vegetarian world, everybody says, oh, no, that's what we want. We want this cheap grain to be dumped in these poor countries because somehow that's going to feed them. I know it seems counterintuitive, but the last place to put that cheap food is near chronically hungry people because it destroys their abilities to be self-sufficient. And this is what this is what has happened around the world under globalization. And in any other circumstance, people on the left would recognize this as completely unjust. But when it comes to food, somehow it's the model we want, and it doesn't make any sense. So I really want people to question a little deeper. You know, I don't mean to say bad things about Francis Moore LePay and the other vegans who put this forward. They're doing the best they can to bring about a just world. But on this issue, they are completely wrong. They have it utterly backwards. And what it also means is that around the world, the number one cause of death for farmers, it doesn't matter whether you're in the United States or India, number one cause of death is suicide. Well, that's the... What would, you do? what would you do if, if someone come and just said, well, we, we can sell to your, another country come in and just said, well, we can sell to your customers, but half the price, what are they going to do? You know, like, this is, well, these Indian farmers, suicide. Yeah, that's where they end up. So, I mean, this is just, and there's six corporations that can control the world food supply. Six. And they have a monopoly. So they're able to drive the price down further and further every year. What this means is that farmers have to produce more and more and more. Just every year just, 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 just oh gosh i'm trying to remember it's um <laughs> archer daniels midland is absolutely one of them yeah. um general mills you can look it up online it's yeah anyway they have i can send you an email if you want you yeah, know if you yeah, want to put them on the website there's, there's no it's absolutely there's six of them yeah. and they have this horrible monopoly and so by they can drive the price below the cost of production so like that's how cheap they can get it and so what it means is that farmers have to keep producing more and more every year um, and so every year by doing that, you know, they're just able to keep their heads above water, but it means there's more surplus every year, which drives the price down further. So the next year they're faced with the same situation, except it's worse. So now they have to produce even more surplus in order to just break even. And that's this horrible treadmill that farmers are on around the world because of this, um, the corporate system, and then also globalization and ultimately fossil fuel, which is what's made all of this possible. So this is what people have to understand, and I know this gets kind of arcane and complicated, but if you really want to have an opinion about what's gone wrong with the food supply around the world, you need to understand this, because it's not as simple as, oh, 16 pounds of grain to make a, you know, a pound of beef. That's not going to get us anywhere, because you're not understanding. The driver behind the system is not animal agriculture. Yeah, you've also put... Um it takes anywhere from 250 to 600 gallons of water to make a pound of rice anyway. So Yeah, yeah. So and it's like, it doesn't really matter then, does it? You're just, without water, we, we've got nothing. None of it's possible, yeah. So, I mean, you've got another uh, great quote as well, um, page 107, I think it is. When vegetarians um, came through... When vegetarians claim, for instance, that Britain can support a population of 250 million on an all-vegetable diet, they were basing those numbers on the overinflated production um, only made possible by fertilizer from fossil fuel. Uh, it's like you said, you can feed everybody with all your with your all-vegetable diet, but you're only going to be depleting the world of fossil fuel, which is like a big problem. So I mean, there's this is the thing people don't understand. They don't understand the problem behind the problems rather than just. Yeah just letting the, world, the, the, the life, well, as you say, the circle of life, letting the agriculture take care of itself in a better word. Um, you just go into, um, just go into a little bit more about, uh, the, I think we were talking about the windmills as well. People think about the windmills being um, sustainable energy. 
Is that? No, yeah, I. Yeah. No, we can talk about that if you want. But I, yeah, I have a. I, yeah, there's a lot more information about that that people really don't have, and there's a number of problems with you know what's supposedly green energy. Um, one and one of the main problems is so where does all this stuff come from? And they're all highly dependent on what are called rare earth minerals, and these are you know as the title might might indicate these are substances that are very very hard to find in the soil so they have to have these gigantic open pit mines to try to get things like you know cobalt or cadmium or whatever out of that soil and what it has led to is these gigantic toxic lakes in places like china there's a 60 mile toxic lake um, that's the refining facility for the rare earth mineral pits that are there and you know everybody in a 20 mile radius has pancreatic cancer from this from this stuff so just the production of this, it's highly dependent on um, nothing but industrial processes. So the extraction is horrendous. I mean, if you look at those mines, it, it's you can't even imagine the size of them. It's exactly like the tar sands in Canada, except it's you're not extracting oil. You're extracting these rare earth minerals instead. Um, I have a hard time calling that sustainable. Also, we're going to run out. I mean, it, they're minerals. Like it's, We can't produce them. You know, We can only find them, mine them, and then they're gone. Um, so there's that problem. And then there's... The actual manufacture of them, which again is a highly industrial process, um, you know, what goes into steel is temperatures that are just unbelievable. How are you going to do that without fossil fuel? You can't. You're not going to do that with solar energy. You can light a fire with, you know, cook some food with solar energy, but you're not going to do these, you know, industrial steel isn't going to be produced with solar energy. It's, there's no way to condense it to that degree. So the entire thing is dependent still on this sort of platform of industrialization. And this is why there's a great engineer, Ozzy Zenner, who's written a book called Green Illusions. Um, and he believed in alternative energy. He spent the first part of his career, you know, trying to design things like solar panels. And he came to the same conclusion, which is this is really just a dead end. He calls it, he calls it fossil fuel and alternative fossil fuel, because the entire thing is still based on fossil fuel. You can't do the mining and the manufacture without burning fossil fuel so it's you're you're still dependent on something that's you know utterly devastating to the planet and to the to the atmosphere um so that's you know basically my my spiel on windmills i just that's why i get in there because a lot of people say oh it's sustainable energy or we're using people don't understand like to get them and the same as our parents like what goes into getting that uh, in terms of destroying the destroying the destroying the, the uh, soil destroying the land you said 60, 60 mile toxic lake yeah and and I'll and I'll add that the environmentalists in China who have tried to protest this have been literally tortured by their government. So you end up with the same, you know, relations of power and hierarchy in any society that's dependent on this kind of technology. Chinese, uh, and it's just horrible, you know, what's happened to those people. So I mean we need to have a little solidarity with the people who live there instead of pretending this is somehow clean and green. It's not. So yeah, we're just gonna jump back in the last bit just on food and a few different things. I mean I'm, I'm sure you've probably got quite a lot of, um, I think you've got quite a lot of, say, uh, letters or emails, <laughs> a lot of hate maybe from uh, Yeah, from, you uh, could say that. <laughs> saying this, that, the other, and you're putting your problems down to being vegan, etc. I mean, it, it is what it is, right? I mean, um, it's always going to happen. Always say, if you're not getting any hate, you're not doing anything right. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> person doesn't stand for anything or fall for or is it. People that stand for nothing will fall for anything. So um, one of the things we hear all the time, uh, people will say we're sort of vegans say as well. We're descendants of gorillas, so we're supposed to eat a herbivore diet. What are your thoughts on this? Um, it's very silly. They have a completely different kind of digestive system than we have. Um, we are related. To, we're actually the third chimpanzee. We're not 
that closely related to gorillas. But let's talk about what's going on inside the digestive system of a gorilla. It's true, they eat leaves. They eat a lot of leaves. So they're eating the leaves. Well, what happens? So they put a leaf inside, and it goes into their stomach. And then there's this vast vat of bacteria that actually digests that leaf for them. Okay, the gorilla is not directly digesting the leaf. It can't. So there's a symbiotic relationship with the bacteria, much like in the rumen of a cow. It's the bacteria that actually do the digesting. Um, and then what happens is that the gorilla is actually eating the bacteria. So you could call this farming of a sort if you want. You could also call it just a symbiotic relationship. But the gorilla eats the leaf, feeds the bacteria. The bacteria eat the leaf and then feed the gorilla. And then the gorilla feeds more bacteria, another leaf. And that's the little cycle that you could say is a living community called gorilla leaf bacteria, whatever word you want to come up with for that. But that's what's happening inside a gorilla. Um, and what the gorilla is doing is, is exchanging very poor nutrient quality cellulose in a leaf for very high quality fat and protein of a bacteria. So they're actually eating a high protein, high fat diet. They're not eating a lot of, they're not actually absorbing carbohydrate. They're absorbing the bodies of the bacteria that are, I think, 60% fat. So it's actually a diet very similar to what's good for humans. They're just getting it from a different source. This is things people don't understand. But um, we have a very different kind of digestive system. But if we did, the same would be true for us. We'd still be trading in you know, low-quality cellulose to feed these other organisms, and then we'd be eating those organisms instead to give us the fat and the protein that we need. Yeah, and chimpanzees have, you know, smaller brains than us. We have much bigger brains, but they do have some similar dietary requirements. And they honestly, they go crazy if they haven't had enough fat or if they haven't had enough B12. And they'll go on these bizarre um, violent rampages where they kill each other. Um, and scientists have, there's a lot of theories about it's a lack of B12 will trigger that in them, which means they're not getting enough meat because they're not vegetarians. So they do eat meat. Yeah. Okay. So... That's awesome. We've covered quite a lot. We've come around. I want to just go into such specific things about if your um, sort of nutrients that people might be missing if they're, if they're vegan or vegetarian, and what what can happen. Mm. So the first one, if I say this right, um, tryptophan. Am I saying that right? Tryptophan. I don't tryptophan. know. Maybe in Britain yeah. you, you might say it different. Yeah. yeah. So it's an amino acid. Um, very crucial. We can't make it. We have to eat it. And there's really not a lot of good plant sources of it. And the problem also with amino acids that come from plants is that they're all wrapped in cellulose. And we don't really have a mechanism to digest cellulose. You know, we are not cows, so we don't have that bacteria um, in our guts that can digest it for us. So any protein that you get that comes wrapped in cellulose, you're not really going to be able to access very well. Um, so you really do need to eat a solid source of it. Um, and so a lot of people know that tryptophan is the precursor to the all-important serotonin. That's what our brains use. Mm -hmm tryptophan to make serotonin. You can't make serotonin if you don't have it. And we all know what happens to people who don't have enough serotonin. It's, you know, depression, depression, depression. Yeah. And that's one of the one of the big reasons that people who go onto these kind of plant based diets end up with depression, um, addiction, eating disorders, uh, obsessive compulsive disorders, um, is the lack of tryptophan. Mm -hmm. I, I mean this is a horrible thing, but you know, just as informational you know, point, 
um, in lab animals, if they deny them tryptophan, you can induce all kinds of insane eating disordered behavior in the animals just from withdrawing tryptophan. And this is one of the reasons that if you go to any eating disorder clinic, um, and this is well observed you know, across the literature, about 50% of the women in there will be vegetarian or vegan. Yeah. So way, way yeah. overrepresented in mm-hmm. the population of eating disordered people, and it's the lack of tryptophan. There's no question that that will absolutely trigger um, eating disordered behavior. So it's you know one of the protocols that really works is to give them tryptophan and zinc is the other mineral that they don't have enough of. And often within a few days, uh, you can see dramatic improvement where the you know the psychology you can break through the psychology of it. Um, it's biochemical. You know, it's not actually an emotional issue. Um, and so a lot of young women, you know, young teenagers like me, will start down the path of these vegetarian or vegan diets, and within six months to a year, they'll have a full-blown eating disorder from it, and that's why it's just purely nutritional. And the number of women who have written to me about this, I mean, it's just overwhelming. Um, yeah, you know, a year after being a vegan, I was in the hospital for anorexia, and it's like they right. see the connection now coming out of it. And some of those stories are just, for me personally, just very moving because, you know, they needed another vegan, another ex-vegan to say it, to help them out of that world. And I'm just just really grateful that I've you know been able to help other people you know coming up behind me with this information. When uh, I have clients who have been vegan or, or uh, vegetarian for a long time, I always say to them, "How how's your depression going?" And they just like, what? yeah, it's just because you just know generally like they're, they're very they seem to always be. I mean, they always like, how do you know? It's just because you just yeah. From if you say you're dealing with people, the amount of letters and emails you probably got from it, it's, it's just something that happens. It's quite. It's very common. Um, I think it's predictable. That, yeah, it's I, just predictable. Yeah. I think you've also talked about Julia Ross's book, The Mood Cure. Yes. So oh, fabulous book. Yeah. Yeah. So people out there can go and read, go and read that as well. I actually want to get Julia on and try and uh, get her on the show as well to talk about it. So that'd be really good. Um, another another point: grains and phylates. Just talk about that for us and how the <laughs> plants fight back. Yeah. So um, you know that the the grain is actually the seed, so it's the baby plant. And they are equipped to defend themselves. You know, everybody in nature has a way to defend themselves. And plants use chemicals because they don't have teeth and claws and they can't run. Um, but they're the original like, chemical warfare engineers. Like, they have all kinds of incredible ways to either attract the, the help that they need in nature or to repel anybody who's trying to eat them or hurt them in any way. And so one of the things that seeds come protected, you know, against being eaten, essentially, um, and that's called phytates. And these are chemicals that will block ab- absorption in the um, digestive tract of the eater. So you can end up with all kinds of mineral deficiencies from eating a diet that is you know, heavily wheat-based or soy-based um, because of all the phytates in the grain. Now, there are ways to disable the phytates, um, and so traditional things like sour grain, sourdough bread, or porridge that's been you know soaked overnight, these are ways people have figured out. Um, they didn't have microscopes back then. They didn't have you know the kind of science we have now. But for whatever way, people people figure out this kind of wisdom. So if we do these things to these grains, we understand that we are healthier because of it. You know, and it seems to work. So if you eat sourdough, you know, if you've got a, a sourdough process going on, I mean, it can take days and days and days. And in the time that the that grain is 
in that acid environment with that bacteria working on it, the uh, the phytates will be completely digested and destroyed. So the the grain then becomes way more digestible. You won't have that phytate problem. But a lot of us don't know that. You know, we don't. Our food cultures, traditional food cultures, have been destroyed, and we don't do those kinds of traditional food preparation methods anymore. They take way too much time. It's so easy just to go to the store and buy it. And then we're told on top of that, oh, whole grains are so wonderful. Well, they're not. They're filled with these anti nutrients. That are the plants fighting back. And this is one of the main things that will happen is um, they'll bind with minerals in your digestive tract and you'll end up with fewer minerals than when you started, than before you ate. I mean, you, it would have been better not to eat them at all. Um, and so most of us don't know this. And so this, is so this whole thing about whole grains being so wonderful, it really is not true. You need to understand the anti-nutrients that are involved. Soy in particular is very implicated in this. Um, no, matter, yeah, no matter how much you ferment soy, um, there are going to be all kinds of anti-nutrients in there. You can't get rid of them all. So it's really no good as a protein source. It's okay as a condiment once in a while if you want to do that. But, um, you know, all these sort of meat analog products, there's like, you know, soy hot dogs and soy pepperoni and soy milk and horrible things um, just stay. They're poison in so many levels. But the phytates alone should tell you, like, it's just not digestible. Well, pe people, I mean, soy's been heavily promoted as a health food. People don't understand uh, how it's a lie. We're women and, and like, the hormonal system, endocrine system, and, and it's been linked to breast cancer. And, yeah, uh, bad stuff. Ex-restrain, yeah. And uh, just, just to link with children as well in soy, go into that for us a little bit. So it's, yeah, that's just horrifying stuff. So a lot of people end up using soy formula. Um, sometimes, you know, there's an allergy involved and there really isn't a lot of choice. Um, you know, if a child is allergic to, to dairy milk of any kind, you, you may not have a choice about this, but I would use it very, very judiciously. In fact, in some countries, they've really suggested only having it available by a doctor's prescription because soy is so bad for babies. Um, the main problem with soy for babies is the estrogen load. So soy comes um, with these substances that are called phytoestrogens, and they look very, very much like animal estrogens. They're not exactly the same, but they're very close. Um, and you know, the take-home point on this is that if you are feeding a, an infant soy formula, you are giving them a hormone load equivalent to four birth control pills a day. Now, nobody in their right mind would give their infant child birth control pills, but that's what you're doing when you give a child soy formula. And this is why there is this epidemic. One of the reasons why there's an epidemic of precocious puberty in the United States is because these children were given soy. Yeah, you've got girls menstruating at age eight, which is just insane. And they've been set up for a lifetime of really serious health problems. I mean, everything from cancer to endometriosis to, um, you know, all kinds of emotional problems. Um, there's nobody is prepared, not physically, not emotionally, to hit puberty at age eight. It's hard enough at age 12. We all know that. But age eight, are you kidding? Um, and I've met some of these parents, too, who you know have written to me. Oh, younger than that, this one little girl four years old was already developing breasts and the mother had stumbled on, she was, you know, big animal rights person, vegan, and she had stumbled on onto the soy information and she was horrified by what she'd done to her baby. Um, because there it is. It's like, she couldn't deny it. And then she looked at her child's medical records and the, the, the doctor had told her over and over, please withdraw this child from soy. That's the main problem here. And she wouldn't do it. And then bingo, the kid's four years old and she's starting literally to develop an adult body. And she was completely freaked out. And she wrote to me and she's like, what do I do? What do I do? And I was like, I don't have any great advice for you. I mean, damage is done. Hopefully, you know, the, the 
young bodies are very resilient. You know, it may be that, you know, she kind of straightens out and it's okay in a few years, but I can't promise you that this kid doesn't, hasn't been set up for a lifetime of endocrine disruption and hormone disruption. It's terrible. And, you know, this woman's going to live with the guilt for the rest of her life. She thought she was doing the right thing. I mean, that's the problem with all of this. She didn't think she was being an abusive, you know, she didn't think she was destroying her child's health, you know, but there it is. Yeah. It's just, and then, um, we're going to, uh, we're going, we're going to that last. How, vegans, vegans, um, having their hair and, and brittle nails. Oh yeah. And, uh, hair falling out and brittle nails. Is this something you come across? Yes, and it didn't happen to me. Well, I had very, very dry skin. I, my skin was so dry it would keep me up at night because it hurt so bad. Um, but I, I have absolutely known people who, especially the guys, you know, they end up bald by age 20. Um, and the teeth, the, with the teeth falling out thing, that is just horrifying. The number of ex-vegans who have had, you know, all of a sudden out of nowhere, they get 12 cavities. And then the next year they have 13 cavities. And some of them literally just lose teeth. And that, yeah, that's it. There's not enough minerals and not enough fat. See, the thing about minerals is that... Um, the only way to absorb them is if you eat them with fat. Fat has to be included in the meal for your for, for them to be absorbed into your digestive tract. So if you're eating these low-fat, high-carb diets, first of all, there's not a lot of minerals in there to start with. But even the few minerals that are there, your body has no way to absorb and process them because there's no fat in the diet. So both of those things just spell just absolute disaster for hair, for nails, for skin, for teeth. Uh, yeah, it's something that it's definite people... People need to understand it. So, so it's just certain min- nutrients you just can't get unless you're things like bone broth are phenomenal for this. But unless you're eating yes. certain meats, um, you don't have to eat lots and lots of it. But you just for a lot of people, if you're vegan out there and you are struggling, um, and you haven't given this a go, and I think it's something that you just need to, to do just to see how you feel afterwards. Your body, I mean, I've been there. I've managed to convert quite a few. And I've seen the health skyrocket. I'm sure you have as well. It's yeah. That people need need to look into. The last thing I'm going to talk about is people will say, "What about the China study?" Now, <laughs> what is the China study? Uh, when it comes to that, and, what, and what are your thoughts on it? Oh, the China study. Oh, it's just done so much damage. So uh, here's a, a researcher who spent I don't know how many years it was, 20 years or something, um, trying to accumulate. Um, information about people's diets like what were they eating and then okay what kind of health problems did they have so he you know collected just vast amounts of data from people living in China and he's trying to prove that um, eating any kind of animal products will give you cancer that's really the take-home point Um, and the whole thing is really rather silly because these kinds of broad-based studies like that you, you cannot you just can't make these kind of linkages between correlation and causality I mean, just right away, any real scientist knows this. And yet, um, you know, people people believe it because they want to believe it. It's very ideologically motivated, that book. Um, so that's the first thing is that, you know, you can look at a million different – I mean, you look at people's – like the data of what they're actually eating, um, you know, and it's going to vary from region to region in a country as big as China. Um, and there's a million variables. So how do you narrow it down and say, well, it was just the fish or it was just the beef? The problem is you can't. You never can. If you really want to do a study on this, you'd have to have people you know, living in a controlled environment for 10 years and only change one variable between their diets. Then you might be able to say, okay, this is what made the difference. But having these just broad-based you know, n- nutritional information about about what people are eating is just there's so many different things that go into their diet so he just focuses in on the one thing that he wants to be the problem 
Um, the interesting thing about the China study is um, there's a woman named Denise Minger um, who now has written a book herself. Um, and she actually spent three months. She took all the, the charts at the back of the China. You have to get the real China study, not the one that was – there's two different versions of it. There's the one that was released – sort of for the general public. And then there's the really big volume that has actual, the data tables in the back. And she recrunched the numbers that he used. And he wasn't even right about his own data. Like it doesn't even match up to what he says he found. Um, so there's a million reasons not to actually take this thing at face value. Um, so one of his big things was uh, before he did the China study, he did experiments on rats where he only gave them certain amino acids and not others to try to see, like, you know, was there a way to, to increase the rates of cancer or decrease the rates of cancer? Um, and yes, indeed, you know, by giving them certain amino acids, you could increase their rates of cancer. But I don't know why this, it just doesn't never have made any sense to me. Nobody in nature just eats these three amino acids and not the other, you know, 27. Like, it's, that doesn't happen. So, yeah, they're going to work. If you have an overload of anything, of course, you're going to throw the, the whole system of your body out of whack, and that might mean cancer. It might mean something else, but it's not going to be good for you. Like, we all know that. So it just doesn't even make any sense to use this as a way to say, well, we know whey protein causes cancer. It's not true. Like, nobody just eats that one amino acid. Um, that just doesn't happen, you know, in the natural world. They don't come singularly. They come wrapped in a package. Anyway, there's a lot of people who have taken down the China study. There's people with a lot more scientific background than me that have raised all kinds of problems about, um, you know, the conclusions that he drew. But if people are interested in that, I first of all, I would recommend that, you know, you do not use just one book to decide what you're going to eat because that's a really big decision and it has lifelong effects. But if the China study is the one that you're sort of falling back on, I would really, really look into um, the critiques that people have done of it because, like I said, there's a lot of other doctors, a lot of other scientists who are researchers who can walk you through step by step why this thing was so ill-conceived and, um, you know, the, the number of scientists who left the project because they didn't like where he was headed. It was like, this is not actual science what you're doing. So all of this is in there and you can find this. It's widely available online. But Demise Minger is the one who really, um, did, I think, did a fabulous job. She spent months pouring over the China study to try to figure out, you know, what are all the different problems with this? And um, she, she's going to be putting out a book. So, um, but all her, her stuff's online right now. You should interview her too. She's yeah, really yeah. wonderful. I've, 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 yeah, I know that Christopher Marston did a really good article. Yes, yes. Yeah, he did a great one too. And yeah. also even um, uh, Michael Eads, he's a doctor as well. He's the protein power guy. Right. Um, he has a blog post about the China study as well, where in like three paragraphs, he's like, I'll tell you why this is just silly. And, you know, he's got it laid out. So, what would you um, say to, to well, about hunter gatherers as well? You, I remember you, you said in your book you said they work 17 hours a week and not vegans say, well, that's the vegans the first diet that we ever had. This is why we should be eating it. Um, we went to hunter gatherers. Just a little, little bit on that. Oh, on hunter gatherers? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is this is how we lived for two and a half million years. Mm -hmm. um, it's you know, it provides the food that really matches our biological needs because it is what we evolved doing. That sort of seems obvious when you say it, but, um, you know, that can be kind of a revelation when you realize. Um, and the, the beautiful health status of, you know, the, the bones that are dug up at, in archaeological sites, you see that they are free from what we call the diseases of civilization. And they're called the diseases of civilization because they don't appear in our Paleolithic ancestors. They only appear once the Neolithic revolution has started and people switch to Neolithic foods. So they start eating the foods of farming and the very first thing that happens is they shrink six inches and their teeth fall out. 
And then their bones are short and brittle and riddled with diseases that are simply not seen in hunter-gatherer populations. And that right there should give people pause. Like this has just been a disaster for, you know, for, for the planet, for animals, for human health, for human society. Like there's just nothing good that could be said about what we've done here for 10,000 years. But there's a really great example of this. Um, there's a site in the United States in, in the eastern part of the country um, and a, a few miles apart, there's two archaeological sites and the people who live there are separated by about 2,000 years and the original inhabitants are, it's called Indian Knoll and they were hunter-gatherers and then the next site that's 2,000 years later is called in, um, uh, Hardin Village. So the Indian Knoll people, um, hunter-gatherers, they eat deer, they eat turkey, they eat all kinds of seafood that come out of the river, they've got mollusks, they've got you know, fish, small birds, eggs, all kinds of, you know, whatever, a little seasonal fruit probably, but that's basically their diet. Um, oh, acorns. Um, and then, and their, and their health is beautiful. Um, their teeth are in great shape. There's no cavities. There's very, um, very low incidence of um, uh, tooth loss, even late in life. They're basically keeping their teeth. Their teeth fit beautifully in their mouths. So it's a perfect dentition. Um, and there's no signs of any of the diseases that are created by nutritional deficiencies. So you can see periodically there might have been, um, you know, a few weeks of hunger because they, there's little lines you can see in the bones and the teeth where you know, we're laying down enamel all the time. So if there's an interruption in, you know, in, in food, in intake of nutrients, there'll be like a little line where it stops, where, you know, nutrient, int and so you can see there's been, you know, like a, a period of a, a little bit of a famine or a little bit of hunger. But that's true in hunter-gatherers. There's a, that period at the end of winter when there's just nothing left to eat, and usually people are hungry for a few weeks. So you could expect to see that. But overall, their health is fabulous. And then you flip to um, the agricultural people, the uh, hardened village people. So it's 2,000 years later. It's basically the same group. They've switched to a corn-based diet. So they're eating these soft cereal grains instead. Um, the you know animal product consumption just plummets. So they don't have enough protein. They don't have enough fat. They especially don't have enough minerals. So the, there's the iron deficiency anemia is very, very evident um, in the, the bones, especially of the children. And they end up with um, these just really, really painful conditions you can see in the, in the skulls. Um, that would have been caused by just the bones become really porous. Um, and apparently that hurts really badly in your skull. So, and so all the, all the kids have some version of this. Um, none of their teeth fit in their heads anymore. They're all, they've all got massive cavities by the time they're young adults. And, um, yeah, the bones are just riddled with all kinds of diseases. So the health status is so clear in the archaeological record. You can find these examples all over the world. Um, what happens to people when they take up agriculture. But that's a great example because it was obviously the same people. It's just their diet switched and boom, everything falls apart. Yeah, I can... Uh, well, it sounds a little bit like the Western, Western price. Uh, oh, very much. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Even though people say... Uh, people were at that, that go against his research. It baffles me. So, oh, he was just a dentist in the 1930s. It's like, well, go and read a little bit more. Do a bit, do a bit more research. The people were very very quick to, to judge if it doesn't fit their ideology then they're very quick to judge and just dismiss things but it's like if, if you for example um, your your health issues and they say well it wasn't a, not a doctor or this that the other it's like some people are looking for the science because they like to just to have the magic um, but no amount of science can tell you how you feel you know what happened to you you know how you felt and you know how you feel now that like now you're 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 not a vegan anymore and you're eating meat how do you feel in comparison to when you was? Well, it's, I mean, everything has improved dramatically. It's, 
you know, my emotional health, my physical health. Some of my problems went away entirely, which was really great. Some of them I'm going to have for life. But even those, you know, which are degenerative, you know, permanent conditions, they've certainly improved. And that's not supposed to happen. So I feel like I got a little bit of magic there just from, you know, eating a more appropriate diet. Your body does try to keep you alive. Like it really will try. If you just give it what it needs, it'll do its best. So, you know, I just have to, I have to sort of take the good with the bad at this point and just accept, all right, I did this damage, but, you know, at least I can do, you know, X amount of stuff that I certainly couldn't do at the end of my vegan years. So, uh, but, you know, even just the emotional stuff, like having a happy, stable mood state is such an incredible gift after living with that horrible depression for years. And you don't even know how bad you feel till it's over. You know, it just lifts like, you know, the sun breaks on the horizon and the mist evaporates and you're like, wow, the world is just, it's color. <laughs> like there's sound and there's, it's so beautiful and there's music and there's yeah. everybody's smiling. And like, you're just, wow, you can see that there's joy available. And that is not there for you when you're just depriving your brain every day of what it needs. And it's, it's something that people need to understand. I always try and say to all my clients and people talking to that people need to listen to their body a lot more and, and stop always looking for the magic and the science because I mean as well we, as, as lies proved like stats as they say stats don't lie but statisticians do and there's all these studies as well you don't know and there's people digging into who's done them who's funded them you need to just listen to your body and as you said there yeah, I mean it's a great if you could say one thing to people that are vegan to finish finish it on what would you what would you say to them I would say that the values that underlie the vegan ethic are not at issue, right? So compassion and justice and sustainability are the only values that are going to get us to the world that we need, and you are right to care about those things. That doesn't have to change. But there's a whole bunch of information out here that you don't have. And if you have it, you might understand something different about the nature of the problems that we face. And you also might make a different decision about what food is truly sustainable and what food will sustain your health long term. And all I ask is that you, you've already made this you know, incredibly courageous decision to be one of the people who tries to face the horrors of this world. <clears throat> and I would say don't shut down because there's still more information out there that you may not have engaged with. And non-engagement is the problem. A fundamentalist mindset is where you do not want to get stuck because it's not going to do you any favors. You have to keep your mind open. You have to keep your capacity to engage. That's, that has to be there. Or, you know, you're just going to sink into fundamentalism and it, it won't do you any good long term. So you don't have to give up your, your basic values. And that really does define who you are. What you eat does not define who you are. But, you know, that motivating ethic you know, is a good one and you're solid in that. So just don't give up on that engagement with, you know, further information that's out there. Uh, I think that's a great place to end it. Thanks very much. We've really taken quite a lot of your time here. It's been, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. And I'm sure we'll get you back on. This would be uh, an interview that people will absolutely love. If you just stay stay there, it'd be great. So, guys, that was Lier. Um As always, I mean, any questions you've got, send them over to me. And also, you can reach Lier at www.lierkeith.com. Um, and you can look at all the information she's got there. I also, put a link up to the book, and you should definitely get it. So, Thanks very much for that, Leah. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Oh, well, thanks for having me on. No worries. So, guys, that was the interview with Leah Keith. Hope you enjoyed it. 
I'm guessing that there's quite a lot there to take in for you guys. I mean, she dropped quite a lot of knowledge bombs there and talked about things that lots of people just don't talk about. And it's a lot of it's a problem with even if even if you're talking into politics, but things like the Green Party talking about renewable energy. But if you're mining parts of the world to such an extent that it's causing toxic leakage and uh, having lakes with 60 miles worth of to- toxins in them, poisons in them, um, is it worth it? So we, we touched on lots of different topics there, even we're going deep into health, um, her experience. I really hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. Um, it was a really, it was a pleasure talking to her because delving into things that we don't usually touch. Um, we always talk about how certain molecules or vitamins and minerals, etc., can affect health, but there's lots of different issues that being um, someone who promotes holistic living, organic food, farming, etc., you need to go deep into if you really want to create change because, as you said, um, monocrops, monoagriculture, um, and not having, and losing species by the day, by, in just every day losing different species because of our well the ecosystem we're creating it's just it's a very very big issue so that really was an interesting interview for myself and um hopefully for you guys okay so that was today's interview um as i said before excuse me excuse me again you can find leah keith at www.leahkeith.com and she's got lots of different articles there and i'll put a link up to her book um definitely suggest you read it the vegetarian myth it's a brilliant read um it's very easy to read as well so i will on this note see you next week where Oh, I don't know who I'm going to put up yet. I've got a few different interview choices, um, so I'm not decided yet. So I'm going to keep you guessing. Leave on a cliffhanger, so they say. Leave people wanting more. So that's exactly what I'm going to do. So, as always, guys, stay happy, stay healthy. If you've got any questions, send them over to me at ryan at reviveyourself.co and jump over to www.reviveyourself.co for any information around health or contact us there if you need any help with your digestion, skin problems, any other health issues you've got, thyroid issues, energy issues, then give us a shout. Otherwise, guys, have a great day. As I said before, stay happy, stay healthy, and I'll speak to you soon. If you're struggling with gut issues, such as gas, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, indigestion, heartburn, and want to finally be able to eat the foods you love without the crippling after effects, then don't forget to head over to reviveyourself.co and pick up your free copy of The Healing Health Paradigm today.